Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Strategica, a series of new podcasts from the Hoover Institution examining how military history can inform decision-making on today's foreign policy issues. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and I'm talking today with the creator of Strategica, Victor Davis Hansen. Professor Hansen is, of course, one of the world's most celebrated authorities on classics, military history, and international affairs, and he serves as the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. So, Dr. Hansen, thank you for joining us. Let's start with the the basics. Explain to us exactly what Strategica is and how it's formatted. Uh, well, Strategica is a magazine devoted to contemporary issues of military history uh, in the uh, how they're relevant to contemporary conflict. So, when we look at things like Syria or Iran or women in the military or the war against terror, we try to do two things. We offer an op-ed uh, that will be a pro position and an op-ed that's a con, usually about 750 words. And then we have a historical backgrounder that tries to locate uh, the issue in a historical context. And then we do a lot of other strange things in each issue. We have study questions. We have uh, bibliography so that the reader can find further resources. We have a poll where the issue in question can, uh, readers can poll and we can get some idea of what people feel or what what particular position they found most persuasive. And um, then we have commentary from our our group, the Strategica group, which consists of about 30 military historians, uh, contemporary analysts that work in and out of government, military officers that we've chosen, and then perhaps 8 to 10 Hoover Institution fellows. So this is the working group, and within the working group, uh, we have contributors each issue that, that write the op-eds and the background and post the commentary. And then I and the team, the editorial staff, uh, suggest the topics and select the contributors and then pretty much edit the submissions. But the idea, again, the larger idea is that the Hoover Institution being one of the only think tanks that's affiliated with the university, we try to take a hot topic that's very controversial we get the controversies out in the open, and then we try to put them in some type of historical context where tools for the reader to further investigation. You've written repeatedly in the past about the decline in teaching military history, particularly at the university level. And that's obviously a deficit that you're trying to address with this project. So tell me why you think the academy has moved away from that discipline, and, and give me the case for why it's still such an important field to grapple with. Well, you know, we have almost... 200 programs, undergraduate programs, called something to the effect of peace and conflict resolution studies or peace studies. And we only have about four or five military history studies programs. And it reflects a philosophical divide within the academy, but within America itself, between the tragic view and the therapeutic, one being that human nature is unchanging and that there's human tendencies that are pathological and the way that they're checked is through deterrence, uh, punishment, encouragement, balance of power, alliances. In other words, studying the past to see how wars can be prevented, ameliorated, um, ended quickly, but not ended by fiat, given human nature is unchanging. The other group believes, as was the promise of the 20th century perhaps, that they can make a new man with enough education, enough uh, change in the environment, a favorable landscape, better nutrition, better 
uh, nurturing that people themselves will never want to resort to arms to decide conflict. The problem with that is it has a terrible record in the 20th century, whether we look at the League of Nations failures or the uh, United Nations failures or what with the rise of appeasement. So we're trying to get back um, the tragic, try to give more currency to the tragic view and to encourage people to, to appreciate that war, whether we like it or not, is here. It's an awful thing. It's a legalized murder, but there are historical guidelines that allow us to understand the phenomenon, prevent it, and then lessen the effects when it breaks out. And we should also remember that in the 20th century, as horrific as World War I and World War II were, the great killer of humankind uh, appeared off the battlefield. That was Hitler and the Holocaust, the great purges and killing by Stalin that may have reached 20 million. And then, of course, Mao was the greatest mass murder in history, 60 million. And wars or some type of conflict might have been able to, to prevent those. So we're trying to argue for the primacy of history rather than social science, I suppose. Well, to that point, I mean, you point out that the therapeutic view for all the currency that it's had over the past century or so has not had a lot of results to bear out some of the suppositions that it infuse it. So why, in your judgment, has it come to suffuse so much of our thinking, particularly elite thinking, on these issues? Because the therapeutic always uh, appeals to the better angels of our nature. It always says um, famine, disease, war, uh, early death. These are all preventable, and sometimes in some cases they are. If we just think a different way, or if we just act a different way, or if we entrust our lives to an all-seeing, all-caring, all-powerful, all-intelligent technocracy. And that's very appealing to the humankind. But the alternative, the tragic, says you're all going to get it old. You're all going to die. At some point in your life, you're going to be ill. There are going to be stresses and ordeals that you must go through. And whether you like it or not, there are going to be evil people in the world, and they're going to act in an evil way and, and hurt the innocent and the weak unless they're stopped. And we can't change that because human nature is flawed. However, the tragic then rejoins and says, but history is here as your guide. It's your friend. And it tells you that there are time-proven methods to prevent the evil from doing what they would like. And unfortunately, that sometimes means a resort to, to arms. But boy, it means uh, you take a young mind today in the university and you tell them the truth and that life is not dying in your sleep at 97 for most people. Uh, and you have to compete with, we can you know, go back to the 19th century landscape if you're an environmentalist or pre-industrial landscape, or we can have absolute equality for everybody and prosperity at the same time, or we can legislate morality, we can do all these things. It's, uh, it's a hard sell, especially in the case of military history versus conflict resolution theory. There's an assumption running through Strategica that we should probably make explicit. You referenced it in passing already, which is that you hold, uh, as the song would have it, that the, the fundamental things apply, that there, there are constants in human nature that allow us to draw insights, even from the ancient world, that apply to modern conflicts or modern policy, policy decisions. Do we, come, do we become too enamored, in your judgment, of the idea that because technologies change or methodologies change that we can't draw many lessons from the past? Yes, I think there's two things going on. Uh, one is technology uh, offers us false promises. If you and I can 
this second call Nigeria on a cell phone, or if we can send pictures of ourselves talking to someone, or if we can watch a movie in our palm, then we think that technology is so sophisticated and has progressed to such a degree that by extension, it can solve other problems. It can solve hunger. It can solve education. It can ensure that we all want to get up and work rather than be slothful. And it's not true because human nature remains unchanged. It reminds me of a I mentioned this before, when I was growing up on a farm, my grandfather used to tell me that he pushed an electric pump and we had 1,500 gallons a minute of water. And the pump that I'm looking at out the window right now has two gallons a minute. It's a hand-old crank pump that I still have. But his point was that the water didn't change. The essence hasn't changed. Human nature doesn't change just because you can accelerate the delivery system. So that's one problem that... People, by association, think, well, we're so sophisticated. We have DVDs, we have iPods, iMacs, uh, you know, iPhones, and therefore we must outlaw Neanderthal things that are bad. And, and that's not easy to do. And the other is that social science promised us that the reason that people were not wise or they were not moral or they were not ethical was because they didn't get enough to eat or they were not exposed to good literature, or they did not they were not equal to one another. And that, that was very persuasive and still is. And the idea that somebody, you know, might be very wealthy and very evil or might be well fed and quite pernicious is something that we don't deal with. So we, we get the idea that well if we have a great society, then war with all these other uh, maladies will disappear. And so social science by it, the implication that it can change human nature in a positive direction and do so to eliminate human pathology has been very influential, along with technology. Victor, certainly one goal of Strategica is to provide some perspective for policymakers, but I, I wonder about the broader public. Just within the last few weeks, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by Carl Eikenberry and David Kennedy, which was lamenting the fact that because of factors like the very small percentage of Americans who serve in uniform, that there's a, a very real sense in which the public sort of keeps the military at, at arm's length, doesn't participate in it, doesn't know a lot about it, and that leads to a sort of almost a separate military caste that operates at a remove from the rest of society. So to what extent does good citizenship require at least some working knowledge of the military and some of the issues that are presented by Strategica? That's a very good question because it's a fine line. On the one hand, obviously people who have experience uh, with the military bring a first-hand practicality to the issue. And that's why, for example, we insist in Strategica that we have uh, the four visiting lieutenant colonels every year in um, we, of all branches of the service participate. We have Admiral Ruffhead, who is chief of naval operations. We're going to have General Mattis, who's a four-star general CENTCOM commander. And then I think most many of the analysts, uh, from Edward Lutwak to Ralph Peters to Williamson Murray, have been in the military. But we also have people who approach the subject more, I don't know, we have some opinion makers, uh, political analysts, editorial people. We have analysts like... Uh, Fred Kagan and Kimberly Kagan. We have military historians like myself and Andrew Roberts. So we're trying to get as many disciplines as possible. But I understand what the point that you're making, and I and I understand as a farmer, it's analogous to the idea of questions of irrigation, water policy, food safety. When I comment on these, and yet I'm always amazed that 
as a farmer who's farmed for some 30 years and 20 exclusively almost, um, most of the people at the universities who are commenting on it don't know what they're talking about, at least the practical side of it. And yet, I don't want to say you can't discuss our food policy because you don't grow food. That's that's not right either. So you have there's a fine line that where familiarity and distance both have their their advantages, and we try to combine the both of them. I'm not a big fan of the idea that people in the military says, "Well, you can't talk about war because you haven't been in the military any more than I am." You can't talk about food because uh, you don't farm, or you can't talk about uh, housing architecture because you didn't design it. But um, because each person brings in a different perspective, if you have enough views that it, that are enriching the question at large, that's what we try to do. And we thought very deeply about this question, and that's why, if you look at the thirty or so contributors to Strategica, they come from well, at least ten or fifteen different disciplines and approaches to conflict. Finally, looking forward, what are your ultimate goals for Strategica, and what are the, some of the issues that you'd like to see it address in the future? Well, our this is something that the group talked about, and we on the editorial side discussed at length, and we said, what, what do we want it, want it to be? And the answer, if I could sum up, was something along the following, that there would be a site on the Internet that would be free with perfect access so that two types of people could employ it easily and rapidly. One would be policymakers, whether in the military or the civilian bureaucracy, and they can say, this is an issue. I know that if I go to Strategica... It won't be partisan. I'll get two different points of view. I'll get a historical backgrounder. I'll get resources to further pursue the, the issue, and I'll get some idea of public opinion, and that will be something I can count on. So um, that was one thing we wanted to do. And then for the general reader uh, who hears every day, go into Syria, don't go into Syria. Bomb Iran, don't bomb. Preempt and bomb Iran. Uh, women can't fight in combat units. Women should fight in combat units. For all of that buzz and fuzz and, and confusion in the modern-day uh, news cycle, we we said we're going to make this accessible so that we're going to try to edit the essays so that they don't use jargon, they don't use ABC acronyms. They're written in good English prose. They're short, um, but... They also have research tools that people can, if they find that they're, it's just an introduction for them, then there's methodologies presented on Strategica that will allow them to further investigate the issue rather than um, give very sophisticated, very arcane, very scholarly essays and research papers that they might just turn the average reader off. So it's kind of a window or a door, uh, a keyhole. You look through and you like it and you get intrigued and then you get further interested. But we're trying to build a reputation as sort of a bipartisan, multidisciplinary group of scholars who wants to approach each current issue on the scene dispassionately in the sense that they're trying to help policymakers and the general public come to a position, even if most of us don't agree with, at least it's logically defensible. Well, we will look forward to what Strategica has to offer in the weeks and months ahead. Victor Davis Hanson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 